when I think of psychedelic drugs, the first thing that comes to mind is party drugs. I sort of hope my kids won't get into rather than medical therapy. However, there is renewed medical interest in psychedelic drugs. Recent controlled clinical studies suggest that these drugs may be useful as adjuncts to psychotherapeutic approaches to treating anxiety, addiction, and post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Matthew Johnson, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. In a CMAJ analysis article, Dr. Johnson and colleagues discuss emerging research and uses for psychedelic drugs in medicine. So Matthew, these drugs and medical experimentation with them have quite a history. Why this recent revival of psychedelic drugs as medical therapy? I think the most important factor is that enough uh, time had to pass. There was a, a large amount of sensationalism surrounding these substances, and they were associated with a you know really pivotal uh, cultural point in our history. And so really it took a few decades for that turbulent time to pass. And so now we can sort of evaluate the medical uh, benefits and risks of these compounds when cautiously applied in a medical setting. We can evaluate those effects and keep in mind that that is different in many ways than what we may see in a, an illicit use setting in which people you know may you know come into the you know emergency room experiencing negative effects of these compounds so essentially enough time has had to pass where we can kind of really take a deep breath and kind of evaluate these things um, based on the effects and not really on sensationalism. So which drugs are currently being studied? The most frequently studied classic psychedelic at this point is psilocybin, and that might be more commonly known as the active agent in so-called magic mushrooms. The other drugs being studied are uh, MDMA, which is not a classic psychedelic, but is sometimes included in that broader category of psychedelic substances. And then also LSD, which was the primary psychedelic of investigation from the 1950s to the early 1970s. Um, there is work with, with LSD now. And so with psilocybin, what's being examined is our end-of-life anxiety and depression, um, addiction, both alcoholism and um, smoking cessation. And with uh, LSD, what's being studied is end-of-life anxiety. With MDMA, um, most of that research is looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. MDMA is a treatment to facilitate um, PTSD therapy. What are the benefits that are currently being observed? What are the findings of early research? So one of the really unfortunate things is that as a, as a society, we really dropped responsible research, clinical research with these compounds for so long um, because the results for some of these indications looked really promising. A meta-analysis a few years ago was published looking at just the well-controlled trials examining LSD for alcoholism and found a surprisingly large effect. Now, some of these studies didn't reach statistical significance when they're initially published, but there's a very, very clear signal where 
LSD treatment compared to various control conditions improved outcomes at various follow-ups. And, you know, many of those initial investigations that reported promising findings certainly encouraged more investigation and sort of the, the rug was lifted out from that research agenda soon after that time. So there was a really good signal for addiction. There was also some research looking at LSD for um, heroin addiction. And so recently, you know, folks have been looking into addiction. So we probed the area, recently published a pilot study uh, looking at people who have tried to quit smoking, most of them for decades. So these were heavily dependent smokers. And in this small uh, open-label pilot study, we had a, an 80% success rate. In other words, 12 out of the 15 uh, folks were biologically verified as abstinent at the six-month follow-up. So you know, we're limited on our causal conclusions given the open-label design. But by the absolute rates, these, these are very high success rates. You know, with the best medications, you get up around 30 to 40% success rate. Was sort of sort of the gold star medication uh, that's approved by the FDA in the U.S. now. So, in again, suggestive of, of rather large effects. And so, also recently, some work by a colleague has looked at a similar open label pilot study for alcoholism using psilocybin and found um, similarly promising effects. So, we're seeing. So far, now both of us, uh, for alcoholism and for smoking, we're following up with larger randomized trials. The other major indication being examined for psilocybin is end-of-life anxiety and depression. There's only one modern study, a pilot study, published um, several years ago at UCLA, but this, you know, in addition to the addiction indication, this was the other primary promising indication for these compounds, primarily LSD, uh, back in the earlier decades. But the study at UCLA found a, a reduction, and again, it was a small pilot study, um, but it found a reduction in, in both anxiety and depressive symptoms. And the really important thing about this is that these reductions are seen not just a, acutely, but long term. So we're not talking about acute changes in mood while the drug is in effect, but people seem to have these often major shifts in their perspective. That's evidence you know, going forward long term. So we um, have been conducting here at Johns Hopkins a study on the same thing using psilocybin to examine end of life or anxiety and depression associated with a potentially terminal diagnosis. And uh, the findings that we're seeing so far, and we've yet to publish these, but they're very large effects that are much larger than the effect sizes you typically see with medications used to treat anxiety and, and depression in this population. And I should mention MDMA for PTSD. The initial work in that field is very impressive as well. In the first study uh, published, the majority of the folks uh, having had re received active MDMA therapy no longer qualified for the diagnosis of PTSD anymore because of the reduction. And again, the effect size is much larger than is typically seen with the approved medications um, that are used to treat PTSD, which don't work very well. So really across the board, we're seeing some impressive results that are certainly worthy of very careful 
and thorough follow-up. With depression, anxiety, and PTSD, it's a reduction in symptoms. But for the other indications that you were talking about for addiction, are we looking at reduced cravings? How does it work? So far, we're, we're seeing evidence of both. And we're really, we have, for questions like that, we need a, a much larger sample of participants. So, you know, we've begun this larger randomized trial. And so we plan on addressing those questions. But all I can say is right now, we see some anecdotal evidence of both reduced cravings and increased self-efficacy or, or willpower. There's variability, but some of our smokers have really indicated virtually no withdrawal compared to previous quit attempts. Certainly, that's not representative of everybody in our pilot study, but in the cases where it's popped up, it's really been quite remarkable. We've also done some survey research with people online who have claimed to have quit smoking after an experience with psilocybin or LSD. And one of the interesting signals that's popping up there is people reporting a reduction in the, in the affective symptoms associated with nicotine withdrawal and not necessarily the somatic symptoms. So people are rating the bodily symptoms as similar to previous times when they've tried to quit smoking with other methods, but people report less anxiety, less mood uh, problems when they quit using psilocybin or LSD. So that's, we think that's suggestive of a, of a potential mechanism. And there's so much work to be done in this, in this area. And I think there are going to be both biological and psychological answers to many of these questions about, about mechanism. Right now, we can speak more to the psychology of, of these experiences. But the improvements that we see, they seem qualitatively different in nature than a typical, so, so let's say using a, a, a benzodiazepine to treat anxiety, whereas that, that's really sort of, you know, masking the system. It's, you know, that's, you know, you're directly stimulating uh, GABA, causing this inhibitory effect. Um, psilocybin, the, the anti-anxiety effects that we see long term are you're not at all a result of the acute effects of the of the substance because that's long out of their system. It's more like a life experience that can help to change their orientation. So many of our cancer patients have said that before the treatment, they weren't living life. They couldn't stand to make plans for anything in the future because you know, thoughts of the future just brought up this horrific flood of, of worries and, and sorrow that they just couldn't even deal with. And many of the people realize that you know, and this is something a lot of them said that they, they could have told you before cognitively, but they really kind of got it deep down that they weren't living life. They weren't really taking advantage of the fact that they are still alive and many of them have, you know, good quality of life now. And there's often this reprioritization of what's important in life. So you, and, and the older research with LSD tends to support this too. So you see a decrease in materialistic and competitive concerns, and you see more of a, a in, increase in interest in aesthetics, pro-social concerns, you know, reconciling with loved ones, that type of thing. It often seems like kind of a big picture life review, and people can come out of that with this big picture kind of take on 
sometimes if they're going in the wrong direction. And I, and I think ultimately, even though these are separate indications, I think ultimately we're going to see commonalities in what we're seeing in the, the treatment of addiction and the treatment of end-of-life anxiety and depression. It's this big-picture look, this kind of stepping out of one's normal sense of self and, and realizing, oh, I've really been going in the wrong direction and getting a bird's-eye view on that and kind of using that opportunity to then take ownership of their own psychology going forward. And all of this is enhanced when it's in a psychotherapeutic relationship as opposed to just being done in a, in a recreational context uh, with no a- attention to safety, preparation, and integration of these experiences. Most physicians are familiar with benzodiazepines that you mentioned before and with the harms of benzodiazepines. And I suppose that many of us might think of harms from illicit uses of these drugs that you're talking about. But tell us what's been observed in the early research in terms of harms or negative side effects in the more controlled environment. So a really clear uh, picture was painted. Um, There were some some comprehensive safety research from the tens of thousands of, of participants who received primarily LSD back from the 50s to 70s. And so so the finding that shook out from that older literature was that the only problems uh, that were observed in terms of prolonged psychiatric reactions to the drugs came from individuals who came in with psychiatric problems or appear to have a strong predisposition. So, for example, had a, a twin sibling who was schizophrenic. So these are the types of things that are readily screened for with very carefully conducted structured psychiatric screenings. So we eliminate, and we're, we're admittedly over-cautious most likely. We, you know, we err on the, on the more cautious side, and perhaps future research can dial things back if the data supports it. But in our recent studies, we eliminate people who have either a first or second degree relative with a psychotic disorder. Again, we're being very conservative because we know there is a heritability, a genetic predisposition So we play it safe by eliminating people with relatives with that history and who themselves may have this predisposition. You know, some other things that have popped up when looking at the many people who have received these substances in the laboratory. It's interesting you don't see reports of HPPD or hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder. So this is something that's associated exclusively with illicit use of psychedelics and is almost always also confounded by polydrug use, so other drug use, including alcohol. Um, and these symptoms have, have also been reported for other drugs um, in people who haven't taken psychedelics. So it's sometimes really erroneously referred to as flashbacks, but the, the psychiatric diagnosis again is HPPD. It's very rare, it's very mysterious. But when it shows up, it exclusively shows up in a recreational use setting, typically with other drugs, and not in the tens of thousands of people who have received these substances in carefully controlled medical research. By far, the most likely adverse effect is strong anxiety, dysphoric reactions acutely, so during the session. So these are extremely powerful you know, substances in their effects on the mind. People can have intense psychological experiences 
often of, of, of both extremely positive and, but also extremely negative uh, valence as well. And it's been reported for decades, even for people coming into emergency department settings. If you have the personnel available to do this in an emergency setting, the best remedy is, you know, strong therapeutic, good therapeutic contact. So just um, talking with someone in a calm environment. And so in the context of our treatments, you know, individuals are never left alone. They always enter sessions having developed a therapeutic relationship with their session monitors. So they have several hours of meeting, um, and this unfolds much like a psychotherapy session where they, amongst other things, develop a trust, and there's this trust and rapport that's developed between the participant and who's gonna be with them during the session. So that minimizes the chances of paranoia, it maximizes the chances that that monitor can can come in with strong reassurance and, and oftentimes hold their hand and say, I'm with you, you're going to be just fine. Trust, let go, be open to the experience. And that's our encouragement is to go with the experience, don't fight it, just observe the effects. We talk about it later, we analyze it later. So that, that strong anxiety is by far the most likely adverse effect that, that you also see out there in non-medical use. However, in those circumstances, that type of anxiety can more readily lead to dangerous behavior. You know, maybe someone might run across a road or maybe someone may end up falling from a height. Some of these have, these examples have been probably overplayed. It's far more likely someone's probably going to fall out of the, from a height with a high dose of alcohol. That happens all the time. Uh, But in fact, people do get into accidents. It's relatively rare given millions of people use these substances, but sometimes people have these horrific accidents because they're so intoxicated. It seems that one of the key messages of your piece is that all these trials are taking place in very controlled environments. Yeah, and there are absolutely risks to these substances. So it's about knowing what the relevant risks are and then what measures we take to minimize those risks. And given those measures, does it then meet a benefit-to-risk ratio evaluation. And so far, it looks like the data really support that it's very favorable in terms of benefit to risk. I've been speaking with Matthew Johnson, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. To read the analysis article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.